Well, good morning. We, uh, we started a new series last week called God Questions, and, um, and uh, we're going to continue that series. And so the first question we asked is, does God matter? And, and uh, if you didn't hear that sermon, I encourage you to go back, listen to that last week. It's on our website, or you can look it up on iTunes, that kind of thing. Um, wherever, po- wherever you get podcasts, hopefully it's on all of those places, I don't know. But it's on iTunes for sure. And, uh, and, if you, and, and then this week we're asking a different question. We're asking the question, has God spoken? And uh, we're going to be jumping around in the text a little bit, but if you want to follow along with your Bibles, and I encourage you to do that, you can start in Hebrews. That's where we'll start out this morning, and, um, and, and we'll be there. So, so last week's question was, does God matter? And the answer was emphatically yes, in case you were wondering. If you're going, oh, does God matter? Yes, he matters. Uh, and, I, and I hoped, I tried, I did my best to, in a truncated period of time, in a half hour on a Sunday morning, to, to make a case for that, that God, that God matters. Um, but it, re- it really leads to some other questions, and I think this is kind of the next question that makes sense to ask is, has God spoken? Has he said something to us? And if so, what does that look like? Because it's one thing to say, yes, God has spoken, and in case you're wondering, we're also going to say yes to that, okay? Yes, God has spoken. But how has he spoken? What did he say? And how do we, how do we, have, how do we gain access to what, what he has said and, and that kind of thing? So, so hopefully, at least some of those questions as we look this morning— uh, will be answered. I can't, I can't tell you, though, how many people over the years, um, as I've done ministry, have come up to me and said, hey, God told me, and then they'll tell me something. And it's usually not pleasant. You know, usually when it's God told me, it's not, it's not a positive thing. Um, and so they come up, they say, God told me, da 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 and, and over the years, I've kind of become a little skeptical. Maybe it's, maybe it's just because of what I do and, and things like that. And I'm always like, I wonder if God really told them that. I wonder if that's really the case. As a matter of fact, I've seen times, and I've shared this before, where I've literally had uh, or watched people say, hey, God is, is telling me this, and then, and then just a little bit later, God's telling them the exact opposite thing. And I'm going, I don't think God's that flaky, you know? Um, and so, so my cynicism rises a little bit. And you might be thinking, that's kind of weird to share that on a morning where we're trying to answer the, the question, has God spoken? But I think, it's, I think it's actually kind of a good thing. We should be skeptical in some ways about what God has said and what he hasn't said. And so as, I, as I've done that, as I've thought about that and, and thought about how do I handle it when somebody comes up to me and says, hey, God has told me this or God has told me that. Well, one thing is just because someone claims that God has spoken to them doesn't mean he has. Yet, I firmly and truly believe God has absolutely spoken. A hundred percent. Believe that with all my heart and all my being. So then the question becomes, so where did he speak? How did he speak? what did that look like? Well, you already know where I'm going to end up to some degree, right? The short answer to the question today uh, has been given. But we still haven't answered all the questions. Like, like how has God spoken? And the first thing I want to say this is this. God has spoken many times and in various ways. God has spoken many times and in various ways. And if you have your Bibles and you're in Hebrews chapter 1, the, the author of Hebrews starts out that book and he says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times, and in various ways. So, so the author of Hebrews says, look, God has spoken. And he's spoken in, 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 a, in a variety of ways, and he's spoken through specific people, right? He says the prophets, he's spoken through the prophets. Now this is what's interesting about this text. It start, starts out by saying God has spoken through the prophets. Notice it didn't say that God has spoken to all the people of Israel, or all the people who've called on Jesus' name. It doesn't say that. It says, God has spoken to the prophets. 
And this is important because sometimes I think we read the Bible and as we read the Bible, we look at it and we go, wow, I, God, God's going to speak to me in the same way he spoke to all those people. He's going to speak to me just like Moses. Like I know it. God's going to speak to me that way. How many of you actually have seen a, a burning bush that didn't burn up and then God started speaking out of it? Anybody? No, me neither, right? In other words, God doesn't speak to us all that way. There, there, were, there were select people that he used to communicate to the rest of his people and he spoke to the prophets. God doesn't speak to everyone in the same way. We, it, it's not the right thing to read the Bible and then to go, oh, well, God's gonna do that exact thing for me personally. He might. He can, he might not. I think it's really important as we begin to think about our relationship with God. It does, that doesn't mean that it's impersonal or that we can't have access to what God has said. We absolutely can and, can and should and will and do. But not in the same way as when we read scripture. It's a little bit different. The, God has spoken through the prophets and the prophets were the mouthpiece of God to the rest of God's people in the Old Testament. And God spoke through them. But not only did God speak through the prophets, right? He spoke many times and he's, through the prophets, right? And so we have a record of this. God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, which I already talked about that. God spoke to Moses at the top of, of, of Mount Zion. Exodus chapter 19, God spoke to Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And he spoke in different ways, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, had a meeting with him in a fiery furnace. That sounds like an obvious place to meet Jesus, right? There's, there's, there's different ways in which God has spoken. The prophets would often, as they wrote the, the text of, of, of the Bible that we have, they would also often say, the, the word of the Lord came to me, but we don't really know how exactly it came to them. We don't know what the method was. We know that it came to them. We don't know all the details. But God has spoken many, many times as you read throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we'll be back in Hebrews in a minute, but it says this. It says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, listen to this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As carried along is used there, it's, it's kind of this picture of the, of, of the wind, like the wind would carry along a, a sailboat, right? The wind would hit the sails and it would, it would carry it along. In other words, what Peter's saying here is, is, look, the prophets were not people who looked at the world and then just kind of spoke out of their own ideas about the world. We see that all over the place, don't we? And when we see that, we should always have, especially in that case, kind of a healthy skepticism of, of someone who is just, just kind of going, well, the way I see it, da 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 right? Because quite frankly, you know, nothing against all y'all. But all y'all can't see things the way God can see things, right? We see limited spaces, limited periods of time, limited context. We see things in our country, not the world. We see things in our culture, not other cultures. We see things in our own families, but not necessarily everybody else's family. We have a, a very limited perspective 
from which we can speak. But God sees all that is and ever has been and ever will be. He sees all of it. And from that perspective, he can see things. And because of that perspective, he can guide the prophets as they write. And they write according to what the Spirit leads them to write, not according to their own interpretation of things. Now, I gotta be honest, when it comes to this, we, we kind of get in this weird spot because we see the word interpretation, and this happens all the time. As a matter of fact, it happened uh, Friday. Yeah, Friday. It happened Friday. I was, I was talking to somebody, and, and, and we began to talk about a, a bunch of different things, and, um, and they said, well, there's so many different, what? Interpretations, right? There's so many different interpretations. And then, we go, and then you get other people that kind of, and, and so that's their excuse, by the way, to write off whatever you say, Right? And then you get people on the other side of things that they, that they kind of have this view that what they do is they go, I just read the text and what the text says, the text says, I'm not really interpreting anything. But can I just tell you something? If you're opening your mouth, you're interpreting something. Like everybody's doing an interpretive process. The question is whether you are doing an interpretive pro- process that honors the text and honors what, what, what it was written or whether you're not. Everybody's doing interpretation. And just because there's different ideas doesn't mean all of them are wrong, right? And so there does need to be discernment. And, and God tells us in multiple places through the scripture that he gives us the spirit to guide us in that, to guide us and help us to understand. Even then, even then though, we still sometimes get it wrong. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful. But God carried along the prophets. He carried them along as they wrote the text and, and, and inspired them to write what they wrote. But not only did he speak through the prophets— And not only did he speak many times, but he spoke in various ways, right? God has spoken, for instance, through creation, through the natural world. Psalm 19.1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. In other words, we look at what God has created, and God has spoken through that. And theologians call this general revelation general revelation. In other words, God has spoken through his creation. He has, he has revealed himself to some, degree, some degree through his, through his creation. There's a guy that uh, passed away a week ago, Saturday, um, and he, his name's Philip Johnson. And Philip Johnson was a lawyer, a, a well-trained, Ivy League-educated uh, lawyer, served um, as a clerk for Supreme Court justices and things like that, and was, was a really, really smart guy. And he came to Christ later in life, and then he began to read, actually, a book by Richard Dawkins. If you know who Richard Dawkins is, he's a, he's a famous atheist. He's a biologist, and he's an atheist that doesn't believe in God. And, and I'm not sure which one it was. It might have been um, The God Delusion. It probably wasn't The God Delusion. It was probably Blind Watchmaker. Anyways, it was one of his, one of his earlier books. And, and he wrote this book, and, and Philip Johnson, this lawyer, picks up the book and begins to read it. And as he reads it, he's a lawyer, and so his understanding isn't so much about science, but it's about it's about arguments, right? That's what he understands. He understands what a good argument is, what a bad argument is. And he begins to read this book. And as he reads this book, and the book is basically promoting the idea of evolution. And so he, as he reads the book, he goes, wow, this isn't really supported by the facts and by science as much as it is supported by a philosophy and an ideology. And so you, as he began to look at it, he goes, there's problems with the arguments here. There's significant issues with these arguments. And so he wrote a book called Darwin on Trial. In 1991, it was published, and, and he wrote this book, and it was the beginning of what today is known as the intelligent design movement. And the intelligent design movement is basically this. 
it's basically scientists and people uh, who have those kinds of skills looking at the world and finding evidence that there is some kind of designer that designed all the things we see. Another famous intelligent design guy is a guy named Michael Behe. And he, in his book, uh, Darwin's Black Box, talks about, uh, um, I always say it wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist, the phlegium or something like that. So I'm not a scientist. But anyways, he, he talks about this concept of irreducible complexity. In other words, there's all these little parts. This single cell living creature has all these different little parts inside of it. And it's basically a motor that is, that is moving. And you take any one piece out of that and the motor doesn't work. And basically the argument goes like this, that, that in this single cell organism, if, since, you, since you can't have any of those piece, pieces missing, you take any one piece out and it, it doesn't work, it quits, it dies, it's, gone, it's done. So how in the world could evolution account for that? Because there's this thing called the irreducible complexity, right? And, and it's not just that, but then there's these other arguments that have come up over time, over time like fine-tuning. In other words, the universe seems fine-tuned, it, it, it seems as you look at it, so specifically designed that it would support the kind of life that exists in the here and now on earth. And as you begin to observe the creation, you find these signposts, if you will, that point to some kind of designer. And I think the more you learn about the designer from his designs, you end up in a place where you go, wow, these things sound a lot like God. It doesn't necessarily point to that, but it certainly points in that direction. And, and he started that whole movement. Eric Metaxas sums up the whole fine-tuning argument this way. He, sa- he says, today there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life. Every single one of which must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. Without a massive planet like Jupiter nearby, for instance, whose gravity will draw away asteroids a thousand times as many would hit the Earth's surface. The odds against life in the universe are simply astonishing. And I I would venture to guess that 200 is a low number. As scientists learn more and more and more, they will probably find hundreds and hundreds of more things that must be just right for this planet to support life. God has spoken in many ways. He's spoken through general revelation, through his creation. We see these things. We look at the mountains and we, and we see not only the beauty of God, but we see his power. We look at the, whether it's the single cell organism or the star that's, that's light, you know, however many light years away. We see what suggests something that is powerful and has designed the world that we live in. But he's also spoken through visions, dreams, Right? And even spoke at one point with his own fingers. God spoke to Moses, right? And, his, and if you remember, God went up the mountain, right? And, he, and the Ten Commandments, he spoke by writing the Ten Commandments in the stone. God spoke with his fingers. But, but God spoke through a burning bush. God, God spoke in Isaiah chapter 6 through a vision. God has spoke through, spoken through dreams. God has spoken by standing in front of us, somebody and speaking. God, he's spoken in all of these different ways. A variety of methods God has used to speak. And he continues to speak, not in a biblical way, but in the Muslim world even today. We see many Muslims who will have these visions from God, these dreams, if you will. And, and they all describe it the same way. They all said there was a man in a, in a white robe, is usually how it starts out. And they told me that I should go to this town and to this place and that there would be a missionary there at this particular place. And so they do and they follow, that, they follow the, the leading of the dream and they end up talking to a missionary who tells them about Jesus. 
and they come to Christ. It's not just one time or two times or three times. This seems to happen in today's world over and over and over and over again in the Muslim world. He's spoken in all kinds of ways. God hasn't just spoken through the prophets using using the methods we've already identified. He's spoken in a much more significant way than that. And the author of Hebrews gets this, but it says, but, but, but this is how God has spoken. God has spoken through Jesus himself. God has spoken through Jesus. The author of Hebrews in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2 says this, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Have you thought about that before? What, is it, what does it mean that, that God has spoken through Jesus? What does that mean? How, how, does, how does that work? The book we have in front of us is very different. We're going to talk a lot more about it in a couple of minutes. But we have this person, Jesus, that the Bible talks about. And, and the author of Hebrews comes and says, God has spoken in all these different ways to the, to the prophets many times in various ways. But now he speaks through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Wow. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. God did, just didn't stand afar and send us an email, right? He didn't post something on Facebook and go, boy, I hope they read it. He sent a messenger in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, to communicate to us. The author of Hebrews isn't suggesting just that we pay attention to the teachings of Jesus. The author of Hebrews is suggesting that the incarnation that is the eternal divine son of God be taking on human flesh. His life, his death, and the resurrection of Jesus along with all of his teachings, they're all God's messages to us. All of them. John chapter one, verse one, many of you know this text. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he jumped down to verse 14 in John chapter one, and it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And in the context, it's extremely clear that the word, the logos is the Greek word. The word is Jesus himself. And he took on human flesh. That's God's message to us. This is, this is so unique. This is so different from every other faith and religion that comes along. And they claim to have a word from God. We claim that Jesus is the eternal divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, literally taking on human flesh and walking among us. That's his message to us. The gospel of John is known as being a little bit more of a theological gospel. That's not to say it's not historical or anything like that, but it has a theological approach as it talks about Jesus. And so when it uses the word logos here, when it says he is the word, it's, it's, it's not something we should take lightly and we should kind of skim over because we're familiar with it. It's deeply theological. You begin to think about it and you go back to the creation of the world. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And, and do you remember how God created the universe. How he put the universe into existence, it was through what? Through his word. 
And then here, the, the, the disciple John, who was very close to Jesus, he says, in the beginning was the what? Through whom, it's cre- all, through whom everything was created. In other words, in the very beginning, the eternal divine son of God, he was there, he was part of the creation process. This is a deeply theological statement here. This is talking about the universe coming into existence through Jesus Christ. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul, he, he reiterates that, right? And he says, all, everything has been created by him and through him and for him. And in him, all things are held together. This is the word, the eternal divine son of God. God's message to us. Taking on human flesh, walking among us. It's God's message. He is the centerpiece of God's message to us. Jesus is the point of the scriptures. Whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether you're reading about Revelation and how things will end, or you're reading about the creation of the universe or the prophets or all of the things in in all of the texts, it's all about Jesus. It's about Jesus. God's, God's message took place in history. A lot, a lot of texts, a lot of religious texts that you see um, in, in, in a variety of religions are, are, are basically like a bunch of wisdom sayings. And we have those in the Bible too, right? In Proverbs and, 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 and in other places as well. Even, even the Sermon on the Mount has a lot of wisdom uh, sayings in it. And so we have those, but we have God unfolding all of history, his redemptive plan through history. In other words, in other words, Jesus took place in history. The, the eternal divine son of God, he walked among us. We can read about him, and honestly, not only in the Bible, though certainly that, but we, read him out, we can read about him outside the Bible. People like Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger, these early historians would make reference to this Jesus that, that you know, the Christians, and, and, and it wasn't always positive, but they, they referenced him in history and they talked about the idea that they believed he rose from the dead. What a huge thing. What an amazing thing to serve a God who didn't just spin the universe into existence and then sit back and watch but actually entered into his creation because he loved his creation. What a privilege it is to serve that kind of God. If Jesus is the word of God in the flesh, then I would say this, the Bible is the witness to Jesus Christ. The Bible is the witness to Jesus Christ. What we have more broadly in the Bible is the story of, of God and humanity, right? But Jesus is the centerpiece of that. We don't, we don't see Jesus in a very specific way in the, in the Old Testament, but we see these references to him. As a matter of fact, we're heading into Christmas, right? And we're going to be talking about some of the prophecies about who Jesus was and, about, and, and how he would, God would present himself in the flesh and that come from the Old Testament. So we certainly see the Old Testament looking forward to this Jesus, but the people at the time didn't fully grasp all that was being said. And yet it points forward to Jesus. And then we have the Gospels and they kind of present, here's Jesus. And then we have, we have Acts and the Epistles. And those, those are kind of like, now the church that, that worships the risen Jesus, now, now, hey, now here's what happened with them. And they're constantly making a reference back to Jesus. And then we have Revelation, right, which talks about Jesus' return, that he will come again. In other words, it's all about Jesus. The Bible is a witness, is the witness to Jesus Christ. 
Now we have other ways that we could say that. Martin Luther put it this way. He said the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. The great reformer. Jesus himself in John chapter 5 verse 39 says this. And he was talking to the Pharisees who were who were, you know, very, very much believed in the, in the scriptures of the Old Testament as they had them at that time. And he said this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Listen to this next thing. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. In the New Testament, we find amazing firsthand testimony about Jesus' life in ministry from a historical perspective. I'm always amazed, and um, I, had, I had a great time at, uh, with, with the Edwards over here. I went over to School of Mines the other day and spent some time with a group that they're involved with, doing some apologetics training and stuff like that. And, um, and, and, and this always comes up. One of, one of the questions that I was asked, and, and, I, and I get this question a lot, is, is, is this. It was, well, okay, what, what other evidence outside of the Bible do we have for Jesus? And I already listed just a few minutes ago some of those. But I'm always amazed at that question because it's kind of like this. It's kind of like saying, hey, let's, let's talk about who George Washington is, but let's not, let's not really read anything from anybody who actually knew him. Like, that just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, why? okay, we, we're not going to read anything that the founding fathers wrote about George Washington, but we're going to study George Washington. Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. And yet that's kind of how the Bible is treated, right? People come along and they go, and they go, oh, well, they were really close to Jesus. So let's not read what they wrote. What? That, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you not want to read the people who knew him best? The people who were there as eyewitnesses. When police try to figure out, detectives try to figure out, you know, what happened in this particular crime, who do they talk to? The people who weren't there or the people who were there? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of an obvious question, right? Like, well, duh, John. The people who are there. Right. We've made the connection, right? Like, I just want to make sure that you guys are all tracking with me here. We've made the connection. So when we go back and we look at the Gospels and we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are reading people who either were there or they had direct access to people who were there and could interview them and get the stories from them and then, and then write them down. So when it comes to this idea of, of Jesus and, and trying to figure out if he is the message of God in the flesh, if he is the word of God in the flesh, if that is true, then shouldn't we try to figure out as much as we can about him? Shouldn't we study him? And if we're going to study him, doesn't it make sense to study the people who are actually there or at least could interview the people who are actually there and talk to the people who are actually there? I mean, isn't that the best way to go about trying to figure out who this Jesus was? Kind of seems like it is, doesn't it? Can we say, yeah, but they're kind of biased. And I'm like, I, I don't know, man. Have you, read the, have you read the Gospels? Like, if they're biased, they think they're dumb. Like, I'm just telling you, like, they do, they do and say stupid things sometimes, and then Jesus calls them out. Uh, th- there doesn't seem to be this holding back. And if there is, they are even dumber than I thought, right? But they were there. In other words, they were kind of like, they just kind of go, hey, here it is. Here's what happened. I mean, Jesus, or, I mean, Peter literally you know, it, it's literally revealed that Peter denied Christ three times. Well, who wants to be remembered that way? Right? I mean, who wants to, who wants to be remembered that, and, and listen, this is, you, you know what an acronym, 
um, an acronym, uh, not an acronym, I'm forgetting the word. Okay, there's this, uh, there's this word that you look back in history and you take the values and understanding of today and you impose it on other people in history in a different culture at a different time. And I, I'm, I'm forgetting the word right now. But sometimes we do that. We read the text and we, we, we want to impose our values from today on the people of that time. And so what happens is a lot of times this happens with, with things like women. Because women will read it and they'll go, wow, that is, that is sexist. Okay, and, I, and I'd like to think that we've, you know, we've hopefully made some progress or something like that, that we've, we're doing well in, in, in that area. But that was the culture at the time, right? And so the idea that women's testimony was not listened to at that time. And yet, who are the first people to, to find the grave empty? Women. Like, if, that, if you want legitimacy at that time and you're writing a text, you don't record it that way. That's not how you record it. Because people will go, oh, well, women, we can't believe them. I'm in favor of believing women, just so we're clear, all right? <laughs> I just, I just want to make that clear. If I were offering an apologetic for the Bible this morning, a defense of the Bible, I would tell you about the thousands of manuscripts, well over 5,000 of them. I would tell you about the historical reliability of the text and how every time the text is questioned from a historical reliability standpoint, it turns out to be confirmed in one way or another, either through other texts or through archaeology or whatever. I would talk to you about the early dates of their writing, that they were all, they were all written within the first century, and, 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 and the people that were there and that were, were alive could still be talked to and interviewed or wrote the text themselves. I would, I would talk about the fact that, that even though we don't have the originals, we have so many manuscripts that we, we, the, the percentage of certainty regarding the text, as far as, as far as how much of the text are we absolutely certain that we have right, is 98.5%. So 1.5% of the biblical texts that we maybe have some questions about, and can I just be honest with you, they don't matter that much in the grand scheme of things. They're not important issues. Most of the times they're like, well, did they use this word or that word? And not only, not only do we know 98.5% of it we got right, but the 1.5% that we're not sure about, we know where that text is. Places like John chapter 8. And, we, and, and the Bibles you read, if you open up your Bible, it tells you in this text, there's some manuscript differences and we're not sure. We're pretty honest about it. And if I were going to offer an apologetic about the biblical text this morning, I could go on and on about all the evidence and all of the reasons that we can be certain that what we have was what they wrote. That we can trust it. That's reliable. That's historically reliable and all those things. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I do want to sum up that evidence. And F.F. Bruce does a really good job of this, so I'll let him sum it up. And he says this. The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors. The authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. Instead, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the power of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. 
says this, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates dividing soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In other words, the word of God, the scriptures are powerful when they are read and they are preached and they are understood and they are received. They are powerful. They see into our hearts, maybe in ways that we really don't want them to. They're powerful. The word of God, it transforms lives and it transforms cultures. Michael and Lauren McAfee wrote the book, uh, Not What You Think. And I, and I recommend this book. It's very, very good. It talks, it's a book about the Bible. And they say this in their book, they say, you may not agree with the Bible. You may not believe in or read the Bible, but it would be in intellectually dishonest to say that the Bible has not had a transformational effect on our culture. In other words, even, even if you don't believe in Jesus, you aren't a Christian, if you look at our culture and where it is today and the impact that the Bible has had on it, and you begin to look at history, and you look at how that has helped us have progress in our culture and come to a variety of places— it's unbelievable. It's amazing. And here's what people do, and people come along and say, well, the Bible, like, it talks about slavery. And it, yes, it does. The Bible also is one of the main reasons that we got rid of slavery in our country. The Bible has had a positive transformational effect. The Bible is the best-selling book to this day every single year. 100 million copies of the Bible are sold or given away every single year. In the U.S., sales for the Bible are between 425 million and 650 million every single year. The Bible has tra is translated into 2,426 different languages, so clearly the Bible must be completely irrelevant. Nobody wants it. Wait, that's not what that means. Maybe that means that the words that we find in Scripture are powerful, that they transform lives and cultures, and they change hearts. And because of that, people are drawn to it, and that's why they buy it, and that's why they give it away as gifts. As a matter of fact, I was going to bring it up, and I might, for next service, bring up my Bible that I got as a senior in high school. That's, I was going to say it's barely holding together, but it's really not holding together at all. It was given to me as a gift. Why? Because it's valuable. Because what it says is important and it matters. The McAfee's go on and they say this about the Bible. The Bible has been fought over, bled for, banned, and widely translated. Regardless of race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status of the reader, the Bible seems to find a relevance and a, promise and a prominence that are not only cross-cultural but trans-cultural surpassing the limitations of the culture. Can I just say this makes complete sense? It makes complete sense. If the Bible was inspired by God, and if the Bible is about an eternal divine son of God taking on human flesh, paying the price for our sins, and rising from the dead, conquering sin and death, if that's what the Bible is about, and us putting our faith in that, and being able to receive that, and to know Jesus, and to know the love, the grace, the mercy, and the kindness of Jesus, if, if, if it's a God that is outside of time, and he is the one that is responsible for inspiring the writing through 
people through humanity, but inspiring that writing, then doesn't it make sense that it would transcend every culture, that it would transcend every place, that it would transcend every time, and it would find relevance in all times, all places, and all cultures? Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. The Bible is our witness to Jesus, and Jesus is the primary and main message, main way that God has spoken to us. We asked the question, does God matter last week? And this week we asked the question, has God spoken? And the answer to both questions is yes. If you want to know the one who created the universe, who put the earth in its place, and then he walked among his creation, and loving his creation so much, he sacrificed his own life. He went to the grave and he conquered sin and death by rising from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father waiting to return and bring us and be united with us once again. If you want to know that God, he's the only God, by the way, but if you want to know that God, then the Bible is where you turn. That's the place you go. God has spoken in many times and in various ways, but his main message is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is the witness to Jesus Christ, the cradle of Christ. If you don't know where to start, you're thinking, man, the Bible's thick, man. Have you seen Bibles? They're like thick. I don't know. Like I start reading the beginning, but then I get a couple books into it and they start talking about laws and sacrificing animals and it's all confusing and I don't know what to do with it. Don't start there. I'm not saying don't read it. I'm just saying don't start there. But it's almost Christmas time. At our house, it's been Christmas since July. <laughs> so start with Luke. Pick up the Bible. Begin reading in, chapter, in, in Luke chapter 1. And as we approach Christmas and, and you begin to read that Christmas story and we'll be celebrating Christmas in, in, a, in a, little bit, a little bit of time. We're going to celebrate Thanksgiving first, by the way. Pie, prayer, and praise. Did I mention that? Did I mention rhubarb pie? I just want to make sure. Start with the Bible. If you want to know the God who puts you here, start there. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much.